Welcome to Climate Frontiers, a podcast series exploring the latest thinking, approaches and debates in climate science, hosted by the Climate System Analysis Group, or CSAG, at the University of Cape Town. Hello, I'm Christopher Jack, your guest podcast host today. Today I'm talking to Anna Stainor and Peter Johnston, two of my colleagues here at CSAG. The topic of the discussion is, or at least on the surface, seasonal forecasting. I have a background in computer science and climate science and have been working at CSAG in various roles for the past 20 years. My current passion is questioning assumptions and pushing the boundaries in the intersection of climate science and the really complex real world in which decisions are made. Much of what we'll touch on today has broader relevance to the role of climate science in society, even science more generally in society. But firstly, Anna and Peter have many years of experience working in this area, and each brings a unique perspective and expertise. So I just want to ask our panelists to introduce themselves and tell me a little bit what drives them and how they ended up working in the field of climate services. Hi, I'm Anna Stainor. I'm Head of Climate Services at the Climate System Analysis Group at the University of Cape Town. While my formal qualifications are actually in physical science, I've spent most of my career masquerading as a social scientist because my particular interests lie in whether the climate information we produce is relevant for decision making. So in that respect, I've worked in both developing and developed countries, but I've been at CSAG now for a few months short of 10 years. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm a researcher at UCT working with the application of climate knowledge for users within different sectors, uh, but mostly in agriculture with farmers and then other stakeholders also in agriculture. My passion is to see climate information be used, be taken up and to build resilience to climate risks, whether they're climate variability or climate change. So thanks to you both for joining us today, and I'm sure we're going to have a great discussion. Um, Today we wanted to have a conversation about how people use or perhaps don't use climate information. So of course the reality is that while many people may be interested in or certainly concerned about long-term climate change and projections that might describe the climate in maybe 50 or 100 years time, there's actually only a few who are actually trying to use such information for real decision making. So I mean, perhaps unless you're thinking of buying or selling property on the coast, um, for most of us, it's it's just more interest than, than what we'd use for real decision making. But I think recent crises like the Cape Town Day Zero drought and the equally, if not more tragic, but much less public drought in the Northern Cape and elsewhere has really made many people aware of just how reliant we are, even in a big city where we're quite separated from the weather, um, on it raining consistently year by year water supplies and food prices and security, the insurance industry, even migration and conflict in some countries. It's just remarkable how much of our society is affected by the weather. So knowing what the next season's weather might be is a great deal of interest to a surprisingly large number of people. And so we're going to use seasonal forecasting as our discussion point today. So while this session is about seasonal forecasting, really under the surface it's about bridging this divide between science and society. It's about unpacking some of the very real challenges that we, and perhaps even some of you, have experienced in trying to make science usable or maybe trying to use unusable science. So I've said just now that what the next season is going to be like is of interest to a lot of people. That would suggest that a lot of people would be wanting or maybe are even using seasonal forecasts. 
Peter, you have some experience with users around the use of seasonal forecasts. Can you share some of your experiences with us? Sure, Chris. Um, during my research, mostly over the last 15 years, I've been chatting to farmers about whether they have used seasonal forecasts and how they may have used them. And I must have spoken to over 200 farmers in this period and jotted down a few things that they said. And I'll just run through them quickly. Many farmers or people in general don't know that there are formal seasonal forecasts that actually exist. Um, a lot of people confuse seasonal forecasts with weather forecasts. They don't really know the difference. And that's quite interesting because in some uh, languages, in fact, the, the word for weather is the same as the word for climate. So it gets quite tricky. Um, many who had accessed or seen the forecast fell into three groups. Uh, one, they didn't understand it and, and thus didn't use it, um, even though they may have wanted to. And the second group is they understood it, but they didn't trust it. And, and therefore, they didn't apply it and, and it wasn't useful to them. And the third group understood it and found it useful and said that some of the things, some of the decisions were affected by that seasonal forecast. Then when asked if they understood the probability, many said yes. And I asked them to give a couple of interpretations of probabilities. And many of them then got that wrong. So I think it's most of us don't really understand how probability can be expressed or what it means when it is expressed. When I asked them which forecast they used, most accessed the South African Weather Service, which is the national um, outlet of seasonal forecasts for South Africa. But others also went off to the internet and found some monthly future forecasts or, or other forecast uh, websites that they said they found useful. We used to produce a forecast at CSAG and, and some were aware of the forecast. And when I showed them the comparison between our forecast and other uh, published forecasts, they, they loved our presentation. And, you know, even though the, the accuracy and the scale may not have been the same as others, I just like the way we presented it, which also is important to, to remember. And then all of them requested easier access to forecasts with specific tailored information which are appropriate to their operations, whether they're farming one crop or, or, or doing something else that, that needs a forecast. But a maize farmer needs a different forecast to a wheat farmer, for example. They were all of the opinion that advance notice of what the coming season would look like would certainly enhance their decision making because they just added to the pool of resources that are available to them. Great. Thanks, Pete. That's really interesting to get that different perspective from different users, um, particularly from farmers, who I imagine would be the most interested in seasonal forecasting. Um, so it does seem that despite the potential value of seasonal forecasting, they just aren't used very much. And there seems to be even a fair amount of misunderstanding and confusion. So one thing you said really sparked my interest. You said that some people confuse weather forecasts and seasonal forecasts. And I know I've spoken to people who are very skeptical about seasonal forecasting because they know that weather forecasts more than a few days ahead are often wrong. So how can we possibly be forecasting whole season ahead? Can you quickly explain the difference between a weather forecast and a seasonal forecast? Okay, I'll start with the seasonal forecast because the seasonal forecast is really to give a summary of two main conditions, and that's the rainfall and the temperature, and how it might differ from what was expected over the next three months. And we do it in three-month periods. So it's a summary of a three-month period that's in the future. Whereas the weather forecast, that's very different. Forecasting the weather a few days ahead is, is very possible and mostly accurate because we're continuously measuring the current weather conditions all over the world using satellites, weather stations, and so on. And given those patterns of wind, pressure, and moisture today, we can use the weather forecast models to simulate how those change 
tomorrow and the day after that, and maybe the day after that. That's about it, because after a few days, these forecasts become less accurate. And, for example, forecasting rain on a specific day two weeks from now, we've got about as much skill as tossing a coin. But we can toss a special coin, because we know on average how many days it rains during different months of the year. So if we live in Cape Town, and it's middle of winter now, in two weeks from now, there's probably a 25% chance of a wet day, because it's winter. But if you ask me in summer, I might say in two weeks, there's only a 5% chance of rain, because it's the dry season. So forecasting where there's a different kind of forecasting based on our modeling and also on, on our data that we have our observations over many years. Great. Thanks, Pete. That's that's really helpful. and That's really interesting. But I guess unless you're planning a wedding, it's probably not very useful. Well, yes, um, although weddings still happen if it's raining. But the same principle applies to other measures. If you ask me how much is going to rain, for example, in Bloemfontein this December, I can go off and look at the data and tell you over the last 35 years or 40 years, on average, in December, it rains 50 millimeters. But on some years, it's only 12. In other years, it's rained as much as 120. So when we provide forecasts, we often divide this range of possibilities into three parts, compared to the average or the normal. The third, driest third is considered below average. The middle third is considered what we call normal. And the wettest third is considered above normal. And we call these things terciles. It's a terrible word. But terciles, in other words, we've broken it down into three groups. So on average, over many years, those terciles represent a 33% chance that any season will be below normal. The same 33% chance will be normal. And the same 33% chance will be above normal. So it might be in the Bloemfontein, the threshold level or the level between normal and below normal is something like 40 millimeters in that month. Great. Thanks, Pete. So that's that's helpful to know. Um, and I guess that's a bit more useful if you're a farmer, knowing some of those kind of values. But I also guess they probably know this already. They've lived in that area for a long time. And so it's still not really a forecast, is it? Well, that depends what you mean by a forecast, <laughs> but I, I, I guess not. Although many farmers don't exactly know, um, even though they've lived there for many years, what their average rainfall is. I found that because recording data isn't always very accurate. But a seasonal forecast is something that's based on the discovery and the evidence that changing patterns of ocean temperatures all over the world, such as the El Nino Southern Oscillation in the middle of the Pacific and the Indian Ocean Dipole and the Indian Ocean, influence the weather over a season, and especially rainfall in specific places and, and differently in different places. And the useful thing about these ocean temperatures is that we can measure them and we notice that they change quite slowly over many months. And in some cases, they're quite predictable about how they're going to change. So we can look at those current temperature patterns, predict the changes a few months ahead, and then statistically, and with models, we can calculate and predict changes in the weather statistics for different places in the coming season. Great. So we can actually predict how much is going to rain in Bloemfontein in this December? Well, we'd love to say yes. <laughs> but um, what we can do is adjust the odds. Remember that 33% in each category? Well, if there's an El Nino pattern in the Pacific and a certain pattern in the Indian Ocean, there's a chance that the rainfall, for the below normal rainfall, or the chance of below normal rainfall, can increase from the 33% to 40% or even more. And the chance of above normal, or let's say over 70 millimeters in December, then becomes less than 33%. So what we're doing is we're skewing 
the distribution, if you like, of the possibility of rainfall because of the influence of those ocean temperatures. Okay, so that does sound potentially useful at last. I could imagine farmers really wanting to know something like that. So Anna, to bring you in at this point, can you discuss a little bit why perhaps everyone isn't using these forecasts? Thanks, Chris. I think there's probably multiple reasons why they're not using these forecasts. I mean, one of the, the minor reasons is something that Peter touched on earlier, that there's a fair lack of awareness that the forecast is even out there. So it's probably used more by commercial farmers at this stage than smallholder farmers because commercial farmers have better access to this kind of information. But actually smallholder farmers are probably the ones that are more vulnerable and they don't have insurance or they could lose an entire crop in one event. So we need to be increasing our um, communication out to these smallholder farmers as well. But I think probably the fundamental problem is these uncertainty statements that, that you and Peter have been talking about. They just aren't understandable to most people who aren't scientists. Um, so, I mean, in Peter's example, if we say there's a 40% chance of rainfall being below normal, then we're also saying that there's a 60% chance of rainfall being above normal. So what information have we actually offered the farmers by saying there's this marginal change in probability? Would they actually change their decision based on these odds? And I guess that comes down to their individual level of risk. So what would the consequences be of them being wrong or if the seasonal forecast was wrong? So based on these odds of it being maybe uh, slightly drier, a farmer could make a decision not to invest in more fertilizer and seeds for that season. But if it actually ends up being very rainy that season and rainfall maybe is above 80 millimeters, then they would have lost a really good crop. So I guess, are these marginal probability statements that you two are talking about, are they actually of any use to the farmers? Thanks, Anna. That's, that's really interesting, and especially thinking of what the consequences might be. But you've raised something really important here. You say that the farmer might decide not to plant because the forecast is for dry conditions, but the forecast might be wrong, and they're good rain. So, so Pete, the forecast could be wrong? Um, that's a tricky one, Chris. <laughs> Forecast doesn't say that something's definitely going to happen. So if it's favored, um, as we showed in that example, that it's going to be, the possibility is going to be higher, that's going to be drier than normal years. It's just raised that probability. So technically, if it rains a heck of a lot, like 120 millimeters, the forecast isn't really wrong because there was still some probability of that happening. Just because there was a higher probability of there being a drier season doesn't mean to say that it's definitely going to happen. So it goes about the percentages, and as a farmer, I have to weigh up these possibilities. If the chance, if there's an increased chance this year of getting a dry season, then I probably would make some decisions based on that information. But but that doesn't sound really fair. So the decision maker could make a mistake based on the forecast. Um, but the forecast, or if we're being blunt about it, the, the scientists producing the forecast can't ever make a mistake. They can't get it wrong. And also, Chris, I just want to throw in here, which we haven't talked about yet, um, there's an added complication of the skill of the forecast. So scientists are able to forecast some areas with more skill than others. So some of these probabilities we're talking about may be more skillful than others, depending on the area. Ah, but we as climate scientists have a ways of measuring how skillful the forecasts are. It's not a guarantee, and there are lots of different ways, and sometimes we communicate these, and sometimes we don't. 
But firstly, we'd say that we got skill if what actually happens is win the range that we predict. And in other words, if we've said the highest probability is for above rainfall and we consistently manage to forecast that, then we'd say we have skill. But of course, we don't always get it right. If we say we get it right two out of three times, that the forecast is below normal and, and that actually happens, um, one in three times the opposite happens. But we can measure forecast skill that focus different aspects of the skill and where and how often it's correct. But it does get very technical. But just to summarize, we, we can measure how skillful a forecast is. In other words, how consistently it is accurate. Okay, thanks, Pete. This is getting quite complicated. But I guess it does mean the scientists have some idea how good they are. Um, so the forecast could say something like there's a 40% chance of getting below normal rainfall, but there's a 2 in 3 chance that we're right. So Anna, do you think this helps things somewhat? <laughs> Chris, maybe. Um, but to be honest, those numbers and uncertainties and skill measures are very difficult for people to wrap their heads around. I mean, just listening to the two of you, I'm getting confused. I want to rewind it and listen to it slowly and start taking notes and make sure I've got it right. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that uncertain information can make users feel actually overwhelmed more than supported or informed. Um, so what we hear most of in engagements with, with the users is that they actually want concrete solutions-driven information. So they don't want to know that it, there's a 40% chance of a drier season. They want to know information they can act on. Even if it, if it doesn't tell them the actual solution, they want to know what the impact might be. And then they have some certain information that they can start making decisions on and allow them to plan. Also, I don't think we can expect people to use information just because we put it out there. Um, that isn't going to work. We're so used to being the authority as scientists. And we work in this kind of void of any understanding of the real world. And in a lot of cases, there's actually less trust in scientists than we might think, especially where the community or the farmers have been doing this farming and planting these crops for generations. There's a lot of family knowledge, personal experience, and that's often much more trusted than some of the scientific information that we can provide. That said, Many of the farmers are actually using the information that we've given, especially when they, they find it improves their bottom line. But there's no guarantee that the use of the scientific information is going to make their decision-making any better than just using historical or indigenous experience and knowledge. That's why it's really important to consider how scientific and indigenous knowledge can be combined to create a product that really resonates with the community and the users feel like they can trust and is more relevant for their decision-making. So it's becoming increasingly evident that approaching this from purely a science side is the wrong angle. We need to be looking at this from the decision context and understanding what makes these forecasts useful. So science alone isn't this panacea that we think it is. Well, that's encouraging. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> so, Peter, does what Anna says resonate with what you've experienced from trying to communicate seasonal forecasts? Yeah, uh, I must just say something about the scientists, uh, Chris. Uh, and, and I think many farmers and many users have great respect for science and they read up on things and they, they'd love to hear more and to understand more. But if it, if it is in scientific language, very often 
they can't use it or they don't understand it. And it's around the skill and dependability of, of forecasts, for example. While most farmers that I've interviewed or we've interviewed in different groups said they definitely like to receive forecasts, and many said they were helpful, there were those who found them unhelpful, who were just not interested in receiving them. And it's also clear that the forecasts aren't very well understood, whether that's the fault of the farmer, for example, or the forecast isn't clear. But it does help if someone assists with the interpretation and to explain some of the things of how to understand the maps and how to understand probability. And in general, most forecasts that the public can ac or have access to are not accompanied with a how-to-use guideline or a manual, and therefore the use will be limited. And then there's the fact that we even aren't even that certain about our forecasts ourselves. And, that, and that's where CSAG struggled. We spent a long time looking at decision-relevant information and defensible science over the past few years, and we found that there are parts of the country where we know that our seasonal forecast does fairly well and has an acceptable skill score, and we can be highly confident in that. But there are other parts of the country, like the Western Cape, oddly enough, where it seems that our forecast skill was always low. Now, we know that this has something to do with the type of rainfall that's found in the region and the causes of that rainfall, the timing of that rainfall, and the link with the oceanic signals. But it's become an ethical dilemma. Can we issue a forecast? Can we put out a forecast that we spent so many years developing? Can we ethically put that out if we find it has low skill? So, in fact, we eventually we took a decision to stop producing that forecast. So that's interesting, Peter, because... I remember this back in the Cape Town drought, um, we had a meeting with the municipal managers and they were desperate to find out what our forecast for the next season was. And the scientists couldn't come to an agreement about whether the next season was going to be above or below or normal rainfall. So uh, that's one of the things that prompted us to take that seasonal forecast off the website. But it's interesting you brought that up because there was such an outcry about us taking our seasonal forecast off the website. Uh, we had so many queries about it that we ended up putting up a survey in its place to find out why people didn't, uh, why people still wanted to use the seasonal forecast. And the vast majority of people who responded to that survey, we had about 350 responses, said that they thought the forecast was moderately accurate. And like you said, a good portion of the people who responded to that survey, about 125 people, said the forecasts were not very easily understandable. But I guess the most curious thing was when we asked them if they would still want us to publish the forecast, even if we thought it wasn't skillful, about 250 of the respondents said that they would still want it. So why do you think that is, Peter? Yeah, that seems to be a good question, although I can say that in my experience, the CSAC forecasts were available. Um, they were visible. People were notified about the forecast. It was kind of a friendly forecast for them. But also, I think these guys are information hungry. And having another forecast, if they even had one before, sort of provided them with a sense of security because they had another arrow in their quiver, if you like, and they had another resource in their decision-making arsenal. So it's a quite a complex decision-making situation that they're in. They're very climate and weather-averse. And by having as much information as hand, they try to decide they try to guide their decisions to avoid as much loss and to take advantage of any opportunities to make as much profit. Um, noticeably, the people I spoke to didn't have a problem if the forecast wasn't accurate. 
because they seemed to understand it was an exact science. And they didn't blame the forecasters. They, they would blame themselves, if anything, because you know they knew that they had to take risks. Great. Thanks, both of you. These are really interesting perspectives. Um, so I'm trying to move forward and thinking about how do we how do we improve things? How do we make these forecasts more usable? Um, so Anna, what would you say is a, a possible solution or a way forward to making forecasts more usable? Well, I think, Chris, I mean, there's always going to be limits in the science. There's always going to be things that we can improve on, and it's never going to be an exact science. But the way that we communicate these uncertainties, I think, is key, because otherwise it just looks like we got it wrong if what actually happens doesn't line up with the forecast. So I think us having a really good understanding of how the information is being used will help us to communicate it in a way that's actually useful for the decision maker. So as the marketing field will tell you, you can't sell a product without knowing who your audience is. Um, so we really need to put an effort into understanding the decision context. And that requires developing long-held trust relationships with the people who are using our forecasts. Um, and over the years, together, we can develop a product. Once we have these trusting relationships, we can develop a product that works for them and sits within the boundaries of robust science. But to do that, we as scientists really need to humble ourselves and invest significant time in developing relationships. And for some scientists, they find this really hard because all of a sudden, your knowledge isn't superior anymore. Everyone's knowledge is equal in this playing field of a relationship of co-development. So we need to be ensuring that everyone has added value in this relationship. And that means we can't map out the process from the beginning to the end. We can't have a, a vision of an end product that we think we're going to get to. We need to be very flexible in, in what our end product from this relationship might look like. And that might be very different to what we've envisaged. And that's okay. We as scientists need to accept that. And it's part of moving the science forward. Thanks, Anna. You've brought up some really interesting topics here. And Peter, do you think something like this would work with farmers? Yeah, I think there. I think it would. There's some limitations, I, I suspect. But I, I do think I should just respond to Anna and say that many farmers will look at the climate scientists and have looked at us and say, "Well, you tell us. You're the experts. You know, we've got our own ideas." So I think the respect is there for scientists, and I, and I, I would think that we have to work on that and, and sort of get alongside them. For example, we, we have models that make predictions of certain variables, but many requirements that farmers have are not part of the suite of, suite of products that, that we make, like length of dry spells, intensity, timing of interseasonal rainfall, onset of rainfall, cessation of rainfall, these sort of things. So, so they look to us for answers there, and they have their own opinions, and when we don't have answers, then, then obviously their knowledge is is definitely superior to ours because we don't seem to have any. So we've got to ask ourselves what would work well with farmers because it doesn't necessarily work well with every other user group. And I think we need to work towards this to understand what really resonates with users and work together on getting the best possible solutions. So actually, Peter and I are, are working on a newly funded project that's trying to do just that. So we're blending psychology of decision-making with communicating seasonal forecasts. Um, and the main aim of the project is to work with commercial and smallholder farmers in the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape 
To understand how behavior change strategies can be used to change the way that they use seasonal forecasts or to change their behavior towards seasonal forecasts. So we're asking a couple of fundamental questions within that project. Um, one is around the extent to which farmers are actually accessing seasonal forecasts to inform their decisions. And the other is about barriers that are there to their use and what would motivate farmers to use seasonal forecasts. Finally, based on understanding that we're hoping to gain, we want to redesign and, and uh, format and implement seasonal forecasts that better match the context for the decisions that they're making. Thanks, both of you. So sadly, we're pretty much out of time. Um, and so we need to start drawing this conversation to a close, even though you've both raised a number of really interesting points. And it sounds like there are some slightly different perspectives. So. From Pete's experience, it sounds like um, he sees that, that there is some respect for science and some um, sort of trust in the science. And perhaps from Anna's perspective, it, it seems like um, there's perhaps a little less trust in the science. And I think this is really important that there are, there are different perspectives and different experiences of using climate information. And, and even within a research group like, like CSAG, um, we have different perspectives and different understandings of these things. So it's it's been really good to get these different perspectives. But I wonder if there are any last thoughts from either of you before we close. So I think seasonal forecasting, Chris, I think, I think it's really important to recognize that it's actually an applied science. Working closely with people who use the seasonal forecast is critical for moving the science forward. And this doesn't only apply to seasonal forecasting, but also communicating climate change projections, for instance. And there's this tendency in the scientific community to put science first and try and fit that science into decision making. And that's what's commonly referred to as the value chain. So it's essentially the science moving down this chain of value to the end user. But we're starting to increasingly recognize the need to start from the decision level. So what's actually needed from the science and where does climate information fit into that decision, if at all? And we shouldn't be making this assumption but weather and climate information is actually what's needed to enable robust decisions. Thanks, Anna. Uh, Pete, any last words from you? Hmm. I still think that seasonal climate forecasts are, are one tool that climate modelers and climate scientists can actually produce to assist and help users to understand climate processes, adapt to them, respond to variability, and even to develop resilience to extreme or widely variable conditions. But as Anna says, and I'm happy to admit this, there needs to be much more interaction and engagement with current users and future users of this and other kinds of climate information so that we actually can make a real difference to their activities and livelihoods. Thanks to you both. Um, I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure we could keep talking for many hours on many of these topics. Um, I think it really illustrates the complexity of, of some of the science. We've spoken through probabilities and skill scores, and we really, we're really only touching the surface of, of some of that complexity. But also the complexity of how you bring the science into real-world decision-making um, and, and interact with people who are not familiar with the science but are very familiar with their context, whether they're farmers or water resource managers, um, insurance brokers, whoever. Um, there's a lot of complexity involved in this. And the whole purpose of this podcast series is really to kind of push the boundaries of our thinking around climate science and decision making. So I feel like this podcast um, in particular has really pushed those boundaries and really started shifting some of our thinking. 
So hopefully that's mission accomplished. And I thank you both for your time and all your perspectives that you brought to this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Climate Frontiers. Look out for future episodes on this platform or subscribe to the CSAG newsletter at csag.uct.ac.za to be alerted to our new podcasts. This project was brought to you by CSAG at the University of Cape Town. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett, our podcast coordinators Kate Kloppers, and original theme music created by Leroy Nell. This is the CSAG community, connecting science and society for positive change.